1 Samuel 15, hear the word of the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. 
Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. For those who study mathematics, which most of us have at one time or another, there's a huge saving grace, and it's called partial credit. (laughs) Partial credit. Now, partial credit is when you show that you understand the concept, but you got the final answer wrong. And the teacher combs through the procedure you used and finds that really you were doing it properly, but you just made one misstep, which led to an incorrect answer. So you get partial credit, even though you got the answer wrong. That doesn't always apply, though. In simple problems of math, you either got it right or you got it wrong. If you have two plus two, and you have to put down the answer, and you put down five, you are not going to get partial credit because you missed the whole thing. None of your steps were right. It was all wrong. But others with more complicated multiple steps, if you just make one step, it could even be that sort of thing. Two plus two equals five in this step and you get the wrong answer, but you've demonstrated, I understand the concept. You could get significant credit for that problem. Now, in our answers to God's instructions, Is there a possibility for partial credit, for a partially right answer? Well, sometimes maybe yes, and sometimes maybe no, but we have a basically a subtraction. I don't want to minimize or or trivialize the seriousness of this, but we basically have a subtraction problem here, and there's really only one right answer, and Saul didn't get it right, and we'll see what happened as a consequence. Now, this starts with something that we find in the Old Testament, and it's, uh, it's very troubling, and it's the, the putting under the ban other nations. And you find this as they were coming up out of Egypt, that they were told to go into the land and put whole nations under a ban, that is to devote them to destruction. And we find that repeated here, and that's how this This begins, Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel. And this, by the way, is about 300 years prior. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way as they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Don't spare any of them and don't spare anything that they have. Now, this, uh, this has a, a past history, as, as you can see, and if you go back to Exodus 17, you find out where this conflict began, and Israel did not start the conflict. Amalek started the conflict. 
So Israel was coming up out of Egypt, and uh, Amalek, the Amalekites, ambushed them, ambushed them. And so we have this battle, and it's that famous battle where Moses' hands had to be held up, and they held up his hands, and, and they, they won the battle. But then we have this conclusion in the, at the end of Exodus 17, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, and I, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And so here we are generations later. Now there's another detail that we get in Deuteronomy, and we find that the way that they attacked was to pick out the weakest of the Israelites and to attack them. Uh, in Deuteronomy 25:17, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. So Amalek started this conflict, and now here we are, some generations later, and the conflict is being renewed, and it's been on and off during this whole time. Now, this is basically, this command is basically a subtraction problem, if we're going to talk about mathematics. They are to subtract all of them, and so the the, they're supposed to come to the the result of zero at the end here. So this is a kind of an all-or-nothing kind of commandment. Now, this devotion to destruction, this ban, is one of the more troubling aspects of the Old Testament, and it's probably uh, one of the most common criticisms of the Old Testament. And um, if it were just a matter of this having happened, it would be one thing, because this is how warfare has and to this day continues to be fought in, in many places. So that's, there's nothing remarkable about that. It's, it's, it's horrific, but it's, there's nothing remarkable about it. The, the troubling thing is that God commanded this, and that's what, what it troubles us and troubles many. Now, this could be a, a whole lecture series on this question, but just let me give you a few things that we need to remember in order to help us to grasp and understand this idea. And the first thing is this, God has the right to punish the wicked. God has the right. He's God. He's the Lord. He has the right to do that, and he can use human agents to do that. Sometimes we find that he takes over, he sends an earthquake, he he sends their swords against each other, like we saw last week in the case of the Philistines, but he can use human agents to do that, and he set up government to do that. Another thing is this, this was not genocide as we would call it today, killing because of race, the race of the people. This was holy war against the wicked. And this is how it was conducted in the Old Testament, holy war. And it wasn't just that the old Amalekites were like that, but if you look at verse 18, it says, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites. So they haven't changed in these 300 years. The other thing is this, the Amalekites started the conflict and they continued the conflict And this was, as you hear people using the expression today, this was an existential threat to Israel. So either they had to deal with this threat or they themselves would be eliminated. So it was a threat to their own existence. And uh, another thing is this, and this is something we need to appreciate about our time period compared to theirs. Ours in the New Testament, theirs in the Old Testament. One reason we find this so jarring is because how our worldview 
has been properly shaped by the Great Commission. So how have we approached the nations in this service today? What did we do for the nations today? We prayed for the nations because we're in the time of the New Testament after the coming of Christ in which he has told us, go and make disciples of whom? Of all the nations. So we are to conquer all the nations. That has not changed. We are to bring all of the nations before the Lord. That has not changed. But how are we to do that? By getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. So they lived in a time of total war, which of course continues in our world, but they lived in a time of total war. That's how nation dealt with nation. Now we are Christians on this side of the cross and the resurrection, and so we look at the nations, we look at the world as a place to be conquered by the preaching of the gospel. If you uh, look at Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, our conflict is not against flesh and blood, but we still have a conflict. But the stakes are even greater. Our, our foes are even greater. We're dealing with rulers and principalities and forces in the heavenly places, and our, our weapons are, are the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth and the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith and taking the gospel wherever our feet go. Those are the weapons and prayer that ties them all together. But we also have another weapon, and it's a weapon that Jesus showed us how to use. It's laying down our lives. You see, in the Old Testament, they laid down other people's lives. But in the New Testament, one of the weapons that we have is that same weapon that Jesus used, and that is laying down our own lives. If you look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 or 10, it says, Now I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they, that is the believers, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. How did Jesus conquer? He conquered by dying and rising again. And how are we going to conquer? Well, sometimes in the Old Testament, they conquered by killing. And sometimes in the New Testament, this is the, the international day of prayer for the persecuted church. What are brothers and sisters doing around the world, some of them today, laying down their lives for the gospel, that, that this message might go out and that all the nations might be brought to Christ? Now, that's kind of a digression on this, but it's something I, th I thought I should address because we, we come to this, this command and it's hard for us to know how to deal with it. And I hope that those things will help us as we, we see this command in its, in its context. Now, what happened? Getting back to our story. What happened was that Saul summoned the people, verse 4. He numbered them. And once again, we have, I've told you, there's a whole question of the big numbers in the Old Testament. You remember that they had trouble. They had a few hundred against the Philistines. And now it talks about 200,000 and then 10,000. There's a whole body of literature about how to deal with these numbers and what exactly they mean that's beyond the scope of, of, of what we're going to do today. But they came to the city of Amalek with a vast force, and before they laid it waste, what did they say to the Kenites? The Kenites, uh, the, the relatives of Moses' father-in-law. They said, you, you treated us well when we came up out of Egypt. We have no beef with you. So separate from the Amalekites. So after the Amalekites, uh, the Kenites separated from the Amalekites, they 
they destroyed the Amalekites. So it says in verse, verse 6, verse 7, Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. So this is a widespread battle, and he defeated them uh, definitively. But then it says in verse 8, And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And here's the devotion to destruction. He devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs, all that was very good and would not utterly destroy them. And that was all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So that's what he did and that's what he didn't do. And then we have this conversation between Samuel and the Lord. The word of the Lord in verse 10 came to Samuel and he says, the Lord says, I regret that I have made Saul king. I regret that I've made Saul king. That's how it's translated here. Older versions say, I repent. I'm remorseful for having the, made, the, made Saul the king. And why? For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And then it says Samuel, interestingly, Samuel was angry. It doesn't say what he was angry about, but he cried all night to the Lord. It looks like Samuel was angry because Saul had failed. Now remember, this speaks well of Samuel. Saul had displaced Samuel as the leader of the people. Samuel had lost his part of his job anyway as leader of the people because of Saul, but he really, really wanted him to succeed. And he cried all night to the Lord and was angry at the, the disobedience of, of Saul. Now, Samuel then rose up to find Saul. Saul made a monument in his own honor, went on to Gilgal, number of things happen in Gilgal, by the way, in this, in this uh, first Samuel. And then verse 13, we have their meeting. And Saul is very cheerful. Samuel came to Saul. Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And then Samuel, very cleverly, you have, have you? Well, is that, is that bleeding of sheep that I'm hearing? Is that the lowing of oxen that I hear? He's saying, what, what's up with this bleeding of sheep that I'm hearing in my ears? What's up with this lowing of oxen in my ears? Where did all these animals come from if what you say is true, that you really did obey the Lord's command? And Saul kind of offhandedly says, oh, well, they, they've been, they have brought them, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people, the people, spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And so notice what he's doing. He's saying the people did this. I did what I was supposed to do. The people did this. So he's, he's passing the buck to the people. And then he's sanctifying it, isn't it? He's saying we did this or they did this to worship the Lord. It wasn't because they were hungry. It wasn't because they wanted these animals for themselves. No, no, no. They did this to be able to worship the Lord with these animals. But everything else we devoted to destruction. And then Samuel just said, stop. Stop right there. I'll tell you what the Lord told me this night. And then he rehearsed God's grace to Saul. And you remember God's grace to Saul, don't you? Robbie preached about Saul's beginning. And Saul was the first one to say, I am the least likely person to be king over Israel. 
if this is happening to me, it's not because of some great merit on my part. I'm, I'm of the smallest tribe of Israel, and my father's clan is a small clan in the smallest tribe. I am nobody in Israel, and I get to be king? He was aware that this was God's favor, God's gift, God's grace to him, and Samuel recounts that to him again. Though you are little in your own eyes, verse 17, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? How did that happen? The Lord anointed you. He christened you. He, he made you the Messiah, the anointed one, as king over Israel. That's what the Lord did for you. He lifted you up from being so little to being the greatest in Israel. And then he said, the Lord sent you on a mission. And this was the mission. Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, in a fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? You see what this argument is? The argument is if you've received grace, you should obey. If you've received grace, you should obey. That's an argument that goes through the Bible. In Titus, Paul wrote that to, to Titus. He said in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, and here it is in a Christian context, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. What has done this? Grace. Grace has, has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What does that? It's the grace that has appeared to us. And that's what he says to Saul. If you've been the recipient of God's grace, then the response is to hear the voice of the Lord and to obey him. And Saul doubles down, verse 20. Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. He seems to be getting a little desperate here. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people... Now he's making this division even stronger. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So he doubles down on his explanation and on his passing the buck. And then Samuel waxes poetic here. And it's some of the most famous lines, in, not only in Samuel, but probably in the Old Testament. And he asks him, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying, literally hearing the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. This, um, this argument is, yes, God takes delight in sacrifices, He's the one who set them up. But there's something even better. And that is the situation in which the sacrifices are not necessary. Because if sacrifices are necessary, something has gone wrong. If they're sacrifices for sin, something has gone wrong. So it's better not to need to offer sacrifices than, than to offer them after having 
sinned. And then he went on to compare rebellion to the sin of divination, calling up spirits. Keep that in mind. This happens later, and Saul's involved in it. Presumption, presuming upon the voice of the Lord. Well, the Lord said this, but, you know, I, not for me. I think in my case, it's, it's not like that. It's, it's presuming. Presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Sacrifice is necessary when there's been disobedience. It's better to obey than try to make up for disobedience with sacrifices. Parents, what do you prefer? Obedience or apologies from your children? Obedience. Spouses, what do you prefer from your your spouses? Faithful love or flowers after unfaithfulness? Obvious, isn't it? And, and, and so we, we understand this. It's, it's better to obey than after the fact to offer sacrifices. So what's the, what's the response? What's rejection? Verse 23, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Now this adds on to what we saw. Do you remember last week we saw that his dynasty was truncated, that his dynasty would not continue, but he himself was not rejected as being king. But because of his first disobedience, his dynasty was was cut short. But now it's even worse. He personally is being rejected as king. It's repeated in verse 26. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord rejected you from being king over Israel. The, 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 The punishment fits the crime, doesn't it? It's rejection for rejection. So you're going to treat the Lord like this? Well, the Lord's going to treat you like this. This is a a punishment that fits the crime. And then Saul belatedly confessed in verse 24 and explained that fear caused him to listen to the voice of the people. I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord. Now, whether he knew that before this or not, but finally he understood it, and your words, because, and here he gives his, his psychological motivation, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. He was supposed to listen to the voice of the Lord, and instead he listened to the voice of the people. He listened to the popular voice. He listened to the society's voice. He listened to culture's voice. Could we say that? Because he feared to listen to the voice of the Lord. Easy to be hard on Saul, but is there any time in your life as a Christian where you've shut your mouth when you should have spoken up because you feared what kind of reaction might, might take place in the conversation or you feared to do this or that, obey the voice of the Lord because you feared what, what those around you might say? Well, if so, then you can understand Saul. And here, Samuel was ready to leave. He says, the Lord's rejected you, goodbye. And, and Saul was desperate. Um, in verse 27, Samuel turned to go away. Well, first he pled with him. This is important, verse 25. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow down before the Lord. This, this verb pardon here is take up my sin, lift up my sin, carry my sin, bear my sin. So he realizes that he is carrying his own sin and he's looking for someone else to take it off of him and to carry it. So keep that in mind. 
carry my sin, bear my sin, and return with me that I may bow down before the Lord. Carry my sin, and then I will worship the Lord. And Saul says, no, I'm leaving. The Lord's rejected you. I'm leaving, in verse 27. And he turns to go, and Saul, desperate, grabs his robe, tears off a piece of it, and Samuel makes it into a parable. You've torn the robe, my robe, but the Lord has torn away from you the kingdom of Israel and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Now, what do you expect to find later in Samuel? Who is that neighbor that is better than Saul? And so far, who's the best candidate for that? Jonathan, his son. But we'll see how that plays out. And now, he also says, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. The glory of Israel will not lie or repent or have remorse. For he is not a man that he should have regret. Wait a minute. What did we, what did we read in, in verse 10? The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. And how does this chapter end? It says, Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Verse 29, that the Lord will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Now, many readers have noticed this and said, this doesn't fit together. And there are many complicated and perhaps correct solutions, if you will, to this problem. But it's not that difficult. We use words, and the context of the words says what we mean by them. And once again, I appeal to parents here. Responsible parents understand what this means. When you have to discipline your children, parents, you regret that fact. It tears you apart but if you are a faithful, responsible parent, you will not turn back. You will not repent of having to discipline them. And those are two senses here. You repent of having to do it, but you're not going to repent of doing it because it has to be done. So the Lord repents of, of having made him king. He's remorseful. He regrets it, but he will not turn back from his rejection, his discipline of this king whom ha he has appointed. God regretted having to reject and replace Saul, but would not turn back from doing it. And then Saul again recognized his sin. This is the second time in verse 30 he, he confesses, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow down before the Lord your God. He still seems to be concerned about what other people think of him, doesn't he? He still seems to be, he's confessing again, but he still seems to be more concerned perhaps about others' opinions. But in the end, verse 31, he bowed down. Samuel relented, and he turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. And then we have the end of the story, and we have Saul finishing two jobs. He finished the job with Agag, and it's, it's rather gory here. He says, bring Agag, this one whom you shouldn't have spared, but you did spare, and then Samuel finishes the job that, that Saul was supposed to do. And in doing so, he notices the justice of it, that there is once again a punishment that fits the crime. As you have made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. 
And so he killed Agag. And then he also finished the job with Saul. He left. He abandoned him. The Lord had rejected him, and Samuel left him. And it says he didn't see him again until the day of his death, but he grieved over Saul. This gave Samuel no pleasure that his replacement had failed. He desperately wanted his replacement to succeed. Now, there is a big idea that comes through very clearly in in this text. To obey is better than sacrifice. And not, not not to play around with the word of the Lord, not to to change it to our convenience, if it says something we don't like, to to modify it presumptuously so that it fits our situation better, or to fail to obey because of fear of people. This is not a question of partial credit here. If the Lord says do, we should do. If the Lord says don't do, then don't do. But as soon as we say that, it's likely that our consciences will prick us, won't they? Because we recall those com- commands that we've conveniently ignored, those shortcuts that we have conveniently made, those prohibitions that we have transgressed. And so we find ourselves in the same situation that, that Saul was in, saying, take away my sin, carry away my sin, bear my sin. And the good news, as I'm sure you've anticipated, is that there is one who bears away our sins. In Peter, verse Peter 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Samuel couldn't carry away Saul's sin. Nobody could, only one could. No other human can carry away your sin, bear your sin, except this one human who is God, Jesus Christ, who bore our sins if we are in him, in his body, on the tree. And if we ask the question, how could Jesus bear our sins? One answer comes back to this question of obedience and sacrifice. Samuel contrasts these and he says to obey on the one hand is better than sacrifice on the other hand. But the reason Jesus could bear our sins is because he brought these two things together. For Jesus to obey meant for him to sacrifice For himself. For Jesus, obedience was sacrifice. And so his sacrifice becomes our obedience. He gives that to us. Because he obeyed the Lord perfectly, he didn't need to say to anyone, carry away my sin, because he didn't have any. And therefore, he could carry our sins away on the cross. Let's pray. Our God, we puzzle over aspects of this text. We're troubled by aspects of this text. But we find this text, once again, like all of Scripture, pointing us forward to the one who bore our sins in his body on the tree. And Lord, if we have received such grace through faith in Jesus, I pray that 
that our response would be to hear your voice and to obey you and show your grace is sufficient not only to give us freedom from the guilt of our sins, but also to set us free from their power in our lives. And so our, may our lives show forth your grace by taking sinners like us and transforming us in those who take delight in the voice of the Lord. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.